you would, uh, turn with me in your Bibles. This morning we're looking at Acts chapter 18, the end of that chapter, on into the first uh, seven verses of chapter 19, kind of looking at two scenes that Luke places side by side for us uh, to help us understand the work of the gospel in our lives. And so let's look this morning at Acts chapter 18, verses 28 through Acts chapter 19, verse 7. Sorry, Acts 18, 24 through 19, verse 7. If you're able, would you uh, stand with me as we read from this portion of God's word? And pay careful attention. This is God's word. Acts 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the, to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Please join me as we pray and ask for the Lord's help this morning. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which you inspired by the Holy Spirit and have preserved throughout the ages so that we might be able to read it and uh, learn from what you have revealed to us. Would we pray that the Holy Spirit who inspired Luke to record these events for us and for our good would come now and open our eyes, give us light to see, to understand, to believe in our hearts and to practice in our lives what we have read. Father, these are this is a challenging passage. There's many things that are difficult to understand in it, and so we need your help. Would you help us today? And Lord, we pray that in all things, uh, as we study your word and learn from it today, in all things, would you help us to see Jesus? For we pray in his name. Amen. I'd like to recommend to you uh, a little book this morning. I'll just briefly reference it. The Select Letters of John Newton. Uh, many of you will know uh, Newton's name. He's the author of Amazing Grace, probably the most maybe the most famous Christian hymn uh, that I can think of, at least. He was uh, a, a slave trader in the, the Atlantic slave trade. He was, he was British, 
And uh, before he came to Christ, that was his trade. He had a wonderful conversion of seeing his sin and his need for Jesus and repenting of those past sins and his involvement in the slave trade. Uh, And he became a pastor in the Anglican church in the um, 18th century and uh, near the end of the, around the 18th century and was, was very influential, had a, had a great influence on many younger Christians, many younger pastors. And at some point published letters that he had written uh, to others who were seeking advice or asking questions, uh, and it's a treasure trove. So if you can get your hands on the select letters of John Newton, uh, you'll, be, you'll be edified by it, uh, I'm sure. In the first three letters of the book, he's writing to a man who has asked him to help him understand the way God's grace works in our lives. Uh, and particularly, he's asking John Newton to help him understand how God's grace progresses in our lives. Uh, with the understanding that sometimes God works slowly, right? Uh, He works by progress and by process in our lives over time, helping us to see our sin, over time helping us to see who God is and helping us to understand who God is and ultimately helping us to see our need for forgiveness and to find that need met in Jesus Christ. And so he writes this first letter, he writes three letters about this to this other uh, gentleman, and he uses a passage from Mark's gospel, a parable that Jesus tells about the work of grace and how the kingdom of God uh, works in our lives, our experience of grace. You know this story that Jesus tells about how uh, a man sows his seed, it's not the sower and the seed parable, but a different one of how a man sows his seed, and as the seed begins to sprout, there are stages, right? First you have the ear, and then it eventually grows into the full corn, and then there's there's fruit, but it happens in stages. And so Newton takes this illustration from Jesus and says this is a picture of the work of grace in our lives. Not everything happens all at once. There's progress, there's process to our coming to Christ, our seeing our need for him. Now, you can go read it. He's a lot more detailed than what I've just said. But my point in referencing that letter, the point that I want to make this morning, uh, is that often coming to Christ involves a process. Uh, there's, there's progress in our understanding and our coming to finally embrace Jesus by faith as he is offered to us in the gospel. And in these two scenes in the book of Acts, we, we get to kind of see that happening in a unique way with two unique groups. Apollos, we'll count him as a group, even though he's an individual. Apollos on the one hand, and then these disciples of John the Baptist on the other. We, we see kind of in real time the work of grace in their lives. We see in the process of their coming to Christ from what you might call a place of anticipation, a place of incomplete faith. They had a lot, but they didn't have everything and they are helped along the way to have kind of a complete faith, a better, fuller understanding of Jesus and and what he had done for them in the gospel as they come to embrace him. And so we're going to look at uh, these two scenes, the incomplete faith of of Apollos, which we're calling knowledge without relationship, and then the incomplete faith of these disciples of John the Baptist, which we're calling preparation without fulfillment. And then we want to ask the question about our own faith. Where are we in that, that progress? How are you experiencing 
the grace of God in your life now? Is there something lacking in your faith in the same way that there was something lacking in Apollos' faith and the faith of John the Baptist's disciples there in Ephesus? So let's look first at Apollos. What do we know about Apollos? Luke tells us uh, several things. He tells us that he's Jewish, that he's from Alexandria, which is this kind of massive port city in Egypt, right on the coast of the Mediterranean. Uh, Alexandria was the largest, second largest, rather, uh, city in the Roman Empire, had one of the wonders of the world, the library at Alexandria, which uh, housed, boasted 400,000 volumes. This in a day without a printing press. So <laughs> you can just kind of wrap your head around this. This was a cultural center. This was an intellectual center in the Roman Empire there in northern Egypt. Uh, this was a prestigious place, a place of great education, a place of great learning. So that if you came from Alexandria, that was something to be talked about. Uh, not only is he from Alexandria, but Luke tells us that he is an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had learned uh, classical learning in kind of a Greek and Roman culture, rhetoric, logic, all of these things that are associated with classical learning. He knew how to teach. He knew how to engage people. He knew how to argue and, and make a point uh, forcefully and effectively. And he knew the Bible, uh, which at that point would have just been the Old Testament. But he was competent in the scriptures. He knew the scriptures. Alexandria, in fact, is the place where um, in about 200 years before Christ or so, uh, Jewish scholars had gathered to translate the Hebrew Bible into the, the Greek Old Testament. We call it the Septuagint today. And so this, Luke is telling us something about Apollos. He's educated. He knows the Old Testament. He's eloquent. He knows how to teach the Bible, knows how to demonstrate his point. We also are told that he has been instructed in the way of the Lord, even knowing things accurately about Jesus. But Luke gives us a little bit of a clue that something is lacking in Apollos' faith. He tells us, look in verse 25, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. <clears throat> Luke's giving us a hint here that Apollos' faith is somewhat incomplete. We get a further hint when we see what Apollos does next and how Priscilla and Aquila react to that. Apollos begins to teach boldly in the synagogues, probably teaching accurately things about Jesus, but maybe not the whole picture. We're not exactly sure where the gap was. We're not exactly sure what was lacking in Apollos' understanding, but there's something about Jesus that he doesn't quite grasp. We know this because as he's teaching boldly in verse 26 in the synagogue, Priscilla and Aquila, this Jewish couple from Rome who had made friends with Paul, tent makers along with Paul, they hear him and they understand that he's missing something. So they respectfully, lovingly take him aside. They don't call him out in front of everybody. They take him aside and they instruct him in the way of God, as it says there in verse 26, more accurately. And, and notice, here's what I want you to see about this change in Apollos. Notice the way Luke describes what he does after this in verse 28. He, they send him to Corinth, to Achaia, which is the region where Corinth is. They send him to Corinth, and when he gets there, what is he doing? 
He's not just teaching boldly. He's not just being eloquent. He's not just stating facts about Jesus, things concerning Jesus. Notice what he's doing. He's showing by the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the long-awaited, long-promised Redeemer. While we don't exactly know what Apollos was missing, what was incomplete in his faith, it does seem clear from this that part of what was missing was a fuller knowledge and grasp of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished in the gospel. And so I, I describe this as knowledge without relationship. It seems, at the very least, that Apollos knew that Jesus was the one that John the Baptist anticipated and talked about, the, the one who would come after him. It seems very clear that Apollos likely knew about Jesus' death and his resurrection. It seems clear that Apollos probably did not know about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and Jesus' ascension into heaven. Or to put it another way, it seems that though Apollos knew things about Jesus and that that was connected to these promises that John the Baptist preached early in his ministry, that Apollos had not fully grasped the significance of Jesus' death, of Jesus' resurrection for himself through faith, that he did not have personal relationship and knowledge of Christ through faith. Uh, you know, there's a difference between knowing about something or someone and knowing someone personally. There's kind of propositional knowledge. I can tell you facts about a person, but knowing the person personally and directly, that's a different kind of knowledge. And it seems that Priscilla and Aquila see that Apollos is right on the edge of knowing Jesus. He's looking for a fuller understanding, and they take him aside and are able to lead him into this deeper knowledge of who Jesus is. If we might kind of think about it today, um, many of you can probably relate to this. Perhaps, um, and I'll, I'll talk to the children here in just a minute more directly, but, but think about maybe your own experience, uh, if, particularly if you have a churched background. If you've grown up going to church maybe all your life, what do you hear every week? Maybe Sunday school, Sunday morning worship, maybe even a Wednesday night program or vacation Bible school. What do you hear growing up all your life? You hear the things about Jesus. You hear the stories. You learn about the ark and all of the animals being carted onto the ark when God flooded the earth and he saved Noah and his family and the animals. You, you hear about Father Abraham having many sons and you learn the dance with all the arms and the legs moving and things like that. You learn about the stories, right? You even learn about the, the stories of Jesus, the things that he taught. You learn about the wise man who built his house upon the rock and when the rains came down and the, the waters rose, his house stood firm and about the, the foolish man who built his house upon the sand and the rains came down and the waters came up and washed his house away. So build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, you've learned things about Jesus. You might be able to answer a factual quiz about the Bible. You might have lots of answers because you've learned things about Jesus. But many of us, having grown up in that experience, often come to a point where we realize, I know all the facts, or a lot of them at least. I know the stories. I could tell them back to you if you asked me to but I haven't come to know Jesus. I haven't seen that there is a holy God 
and I've offended him with my sin. I haven't heard and understood that there's judgment for me. I haven't experienced that. I might have heard about it, but I haven't experienced the weight of that on my heart and seen that God has provided a way out, that he's provided forgiveness for my sins, and it comes through not just knowing about Jesus, but trusting him. Theologians often describe faith as having kind of three parts. There's Latin words, but I don't know Latin, so I'll just give you the English words. There's knowledge, kind of knowing facts, what we're talking about. There's assent, saying I I not only know these things, but I'm assenting to their truth. And then the third and most important part, they all go together, but the third and most important part is trust, or the Latin is fiducia, that there's a, a, a leaning on those promises experientially. Not only do I know that those promises are out there, but I have embraced them as my own. That they are true, not just in general, but they are true for me. The story is often told about John Wesley, uh, who was an Anglican priest and the founder of the Wesleyan movement, or one of the founders of that movement, and of course the Methodist Church arises out of that movement. Wesley was educated in Oxford, grew up in the home of uh, a Christian minister in the Anglican Church. While he was at Oxford, he was involved in these things called holy clubs, which sounds holy uh, and, and godly, and they were, and went into ministry, was sent across the Atlantic to uh, the colonies at that point to do ministry, to, to do evangelism, to do mission work. Uh, and as he was here, he, he began to come to a deeper understanding of his lack of faith, his lack of personal embrace of Jesus. And on the voyage back across the Atlantic, I think I'm getting this right, on the voyage back across the Atlantic, he was on a ship with a bunch of uh, German Moravians, it's kind of a branch of the Lutheran church, and a storm came, as often happens on the Atlantic. And it's rocking the boat, it's kind of terrifying, and, and he's feeling anxious about this experience because it's dangerous, and he notices that the Mora- these Moravian Christians, these German Lutherans, they're all gathered around singing hymns and, and praising God and, and praying in the midst of this storm. And, and he all of a sudden realized they had something that he didn't. And in conversation later with one of them, they were asking him, well, do you know that uh, Jesus is your Savior? And John Wesley said something like, well, I know that he is the Savior of the world. Knowledge, assent, things about Jesus. And this brother asked him, but do you know that he is your Savior? And, and that led him to this point of understanding, while he knew a lot about Jesus, he had even worked for Jesus. You know, he was employed by the church, went all the way across the Atlantic to do missions work. It was at that moment that he realized that he had never really known Jesus. Apollos is eloquent. He's competent in the scriptures. He knows things about Jesus, and he's very sincere and fervent in this. We wouldn't put him in the same category as the hostile Jews or hostile pagans in their reaction to Paul. He's in a different category, right? He's grown up hearing it. He understands some, some of the matters that he's received, but he doesn't know Jesus personally. He hasn't embraced him by faith. What does this look like today? Just pause here for a second. 
Uh, and here I'd like to just talk to maybe the children, which I should do more often uh, in sermons. Think about those of you who are growing up in Christian homes, those of you who are growing up in, in the church. Sometimes there's a mixed message. It's a, it's a balancing act. It's a little bit of a challenge to kind of hit it just right all the time. We don't do it well. Because your parents are probably telling you, and you're probably hearing from your pastors and your Sunday school teachers, that it's important for you to be good. Follow the rules, uh, be an upstanding person, uh, do what God says to do, obey the Ten Commandments, and all of those things are good and right and true. But often the message that can get kind of mixed in with that is you need to be good, you need to follow the rules, you need to obey your parents, all these things are true and good. But often the mixed message that gets kind of snuck in there is that if you do those things, God loves you because of it. And so you kind of grow up thinking, I've been, I've been good, and God loves me because I'm good. And then a couple of things can happen as you grow up. One, you can all of a sudden realize, I'm not good. <laughs> I tried to obey my parents, but I stink at it. Or I really want what other people have, uh, you know, all these Legos that are out there, and I just want them all. And I'm so mad at the people who have them, or whatever the case may be. Shoes, talents, well, it doesn't matter. I want it. I'm coveting. And you think, I'm not good. And then if you're doing a little more deep thinking, you might think, I'm not good. Being good is what make, makes God love me and accept me. Then God must not love me and accept me. And we've, we've messed you up a little bit. It's part of the process, though. Because part of what you have to see is God wants me to be good can't do it. I fail. But God has provided grace for me in a Savior, Jesus. He was good perfectly for you. And he calls you not to just know things about him, but to trust him. And when we trust him, there's forgiveness, there's grace, there's righteousness, all of his good things, the ways that he never sinned and was always good, it covers you. And so as you're growing up, young disciples in the church, it's important for you not just to know about Jesus, but to know him and to learn to trust him. And it might be a little bit of a process. We often think that the gospel is about our work or maybe about our feeling better about ourselves and that that's what God is at work doing. And we miss this truth that the gospel is about our being sinners against a holy God and needing forgiveness and God providing that in Jesus. And that what we must do is respond, not by working harder, trying just to be better, but by trusting that Jesus has done it all for us. Knowledge without relationship is close, but no cigar. We need to have that relationship with Jesus Christ. And Apollos found it through the help of, of, of Priscilla and Aquila. I'm probably spending more time on this than the second point, so I'm just letting you know that ahead of time. Partly because the second passage is a little more complicated and I didn't want to spend a ton of time on it. Just full disclosure. One more thing I want you to notice here in this account with Apollos. Notice the grace and love of Priscilla and Aquila. I would have loved to have known more about these two. Uh, Paul clearly had a deep friendship with them. He talks about them in other letters. He describes them as one of my favorite phrases in Paul's letters. He talks about how they stuck their neck out for him, which I just think is so cool. This couple must have just been amazing. Lovers of Jesus, um, humble. He's a, he, they're tent makers. 
and, and yet they, they have enough love and humility when they hear Apollos. He's almost there, but he's missing something. They don't call him out in front of everybody. They lovingly take him aside, maybe even taking them into their own home to teach Apollos more accurately about Jesus. Um, some of you can fill that role, right? Some of you have grown in maturity and in love and the knowledge of Jesus and maybe have opportunities as you hear other people talking about the Lord and growing in their faith and wanting to know more. You might be in that role of Priscilla and Aquila and being able to take alongside others and teach them more accurately the way of God. But I want you to notice finally in this part how Apollos responds to their teaching. It's implied, it's not explicitly stated, but I think Luke is telling us something by highlighting all of Apollos' gifts. He's eloquent, he's from Alexandria, and all that that means. He's competent in the scripture, he's fervent in his spirit. He has a deep burning desire to talk about these things. He's bold in his teaching. I mean, he's, he's at an upper level, right? Intellectually, culturally, he's up there. And yet he is humble enough to learn from a lowly tent maker and his wife. I don't know if you noticed that. Priscilla is listed first in the listing of Priscilla and Aquila. He's humble enough to learn from these other believers, to acknowledge that they are at a different level of maturity and knowledge than he is, even though he's highly gifted and highly skilled. May we all have that same humility. Let's look next at the incomplete faith of John the Baptist's disciples. This is a challenging part of this passage. Uh, it's hard to kind of grasp what's, a lot of what's going on here. At the very least, we can say this. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, we know had many disciples. He came preaching a baptism of repentance. And people from all over came to the Jordan River, repenting of sins and being baptized by him in the Jordan. And yet part of John's message was, there's another coming after me. He's greater than I am. He must increase. I must decrease. I baptize you with water for repentance and forgiveness. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John's ministry was one of preparation. It was a preliminary ministry. It was not meant to be lasting. It was not the final word in God's plan. John is very much in line with all of the old covenant prophets, Isaiah, Malachi, and so forth. He's the last of them. And he's pointing ahead to the one who would come, namely Jesus. And it appears that there were some who had gone to Judea, been baptized by John the Baptist, where his disciples were anticipating what he said was coming, the Redeemer. And yet they hadn't heard that he had come. There's this anticipation of the Savior who would come, but they had not yet heard that there was fulfillment these seem to be, this seems to be the case with these disciples that Paul encounters in Ephesus. Apollos is in Corinth. Paul comes back, as he said he would, to Ephesus. He's going to spend about two years there. This is right at the beginning. And he meets these 12 disciples, and he has this conversation with them, and he finds out they're disciples of John. They haven't yet heard that the Holy Spirit has come, and they haven't, it appears, heard the name of Jesus. They have anticipated a Savior they believed John's message of preparation, that one was coming after him, but they didn't yet know who that one was. You might think about it this way. They had deep things that they were longing for and anticipating, and they did not know that those things had arrived in Christ, and they needed someone to tell them. 
There's a story told, uh, and one of the commentaries shares this illustration of settlers in Virginia who, before the Revolution, had decided they were going to go west, kind of beyond the mountains, and begin to settle some of those frontier lands. But they got in the mountains, and it was a little harder than they thought. And they got stuck in the mountains, and they remained in the mountains of Virginia, and they were kind of isolated from the rest of the colony. They didn't have any kind of outsiders coming in, sharing the latest news or anything like that. And at some point during the Revolutionary War, uh, some other folks from the rest of the colony came into this mountainous area and started asking these guys, hey, what do you think about the Continental Congress? What do you think about the Revolution? What do you think about all these things going on? They're like, we didn't even know there was a revolution. We didn't know there was a Continental Congress. What are, you, what are you talking about? They still thought they were faithful subjects of the king. They had no idea what had happened. Whether they were anticipating any of that, that or not is beside the point. The point is there was good news from their perspective that had not been announced yet. They had not heard it yet. And I think that's the case with these, ba- uh, not these Baptists, but these <laughs> disciples of John the Baptist. We prefer to call him John the Baptizer because it helps us make the distinction. Uh, At any rate, these disciples of John the Baptist had not yet heard that all that they had been anticipating, all that they were expecting and eagerly waiting for, had finally arrived in Jesus. Isn't that often the case with us today? Many of us find ourselves desiring deeply redemption. Many of us find ourselves deeply desiring to be rid of the shame that we have from our sin. Many of us find ourselves deeply desiring, longing for real and lasting change in our lives. Some of us who have that deep desire know the answer. It's been fulfilled in Jesus, but some some don't. Some have that built-in, God-given yearning to know God and to be forgiven of sins and and not quite sure how that works and how it happens. You need somebody to tell you. You need to hear the good news that it's found in Jesus. Jesus who came and, and took our sin upon himself and lived a perfect life that we could not live and gave himself at the cross, bearing fully the justice due to us for our sins and carrying it away in his tomb and in his resurrection, giving us forgiveness and life and freedom from the guilt of sin. Through his death and resurrection, the shadows of promise that these disciples were holding on to have been brought into light. And what was once unclear is now seen clearly that the promise of forgiveness is found through faith in Jesus. And to confirm that they belong, the Holy Spirit is poured out on them in these attesting miracles of tongues and prophecy. They've been brought in. Knowledge without relationship, knowing the facts but not knowing Jesus. It's an incomplete faith. Anticipation but not fulfillment. Having the longing but not recognizing that it's been fulfilled in Jesus. It's an incomplete faith. And so I ask you this morning, is there anything lacking in your faith? Do you know about Jesus but don't know him personally? Do you have a misdirected understanding of the good news? Maybe you've heard a mixed message and think that the good news is about you being good and not about what Jesus has done for you. There's lots of misunderstandings, lots of false gospels out there, and it's easy to get 
mixed up. Make sure that you understand the true gospel of Jesus in the Bible. Is your faith incomplete in that way? If it is, then I invite you to see the truth that all of these promises are kept and fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, He has come, and he has done all things that God has promised and all things necessary for our salvation. That Jesus calls you not just to know things about him, check the box, answer the questions on the quiz, but he's called you to know him, to trust him, to lean upon his promises by faith, and to know him in that way as not only the Savior of the world, but as your Savior and the one who brings you into the kingdom as beloved children of God. Would you pray with me?